kids in youth and adults. That's what the time the kids are going home and the youth are going to bed. So good morning. This week we're going to continue our, our sermon series through the book of Luke. Um, we've kind of titled this Good News for the Lost. And so this morning we are glad that you're here with us. We're glad that we're able to celebrate and worship together. Um, my hope is as we read in this psalmist when David said that even through it all, maybe we can be people who trust in the Lord, delight in the Lord, commit our way to the Lord, and learn to be still. That's wonderful words in Psalm 37. Our passage this morning is actually Luke 17 and 26. It falls in what's been commonly termed the Sermon on the Plains. Now, we as Anabaptists and we say Sermon on the Mount, we know that one. We're like, yes, Matthew 5 to 7, right? That's the canon within the canon. But the Sermon on the Plains is very, very interesting. Uh, one of the things is that, first of all, like, there's a text you'll see when we get into it. He actually preaches or shares these things from an even level place, right? So that's one of the ways it's different. The Sermon on the Mount, when you go to Matthew, it says, he was up on a mountainside and he started to teach. So mount is on a mount, plane is on a, a, a plane. What's interesting about this isn't just that Luke and Matthew are, are, are talking about two different sites. But what's fascinating is that around the Sea of Galilee, right, depending on where you were and listening to Jesus, you might call this plane or mount. What I mean by that is that if you were with Jesus, you know, uh, as kind of looking from the top of the Sea of Galilee, it was flattened out. So you'd be like, yeah, this is coming on the plane. But remember now, like, you'll see in the passage, there's literally thousands of people who are with Jesus. So if they're at the bottom looking up, they will see this is the sermon on the mount. Why does all that matter? Well, because the two texts are very similar, right? And, and so one of the things that's interesting is, I feel like part of the reason I went to the last church is to get sermon examples, right? Well, we're not actually went to this place called Homer. And Homer is interesting because I think it has the fourth highest, you know, uh, what do you call it, high deviation. And I was just like, oh, that sounds cool. I don't know about this, right? Um, and, and so when we got there, there was this big rock, right? And they're like, hey, we call this a sea otter because when the tide comes in, right, it looks like the otter is laying on its back. And I was just like, no, this looks like a big rock. You know, like, it looks like a rock that you have to climb. But we spent an hour with the kids and picking up anemones and sausage and, and crabs, all kinds of different crabs, right? And it was fun. And then we walked maybe half a mile to a mile, ate lunch, went on another hike and came back. When we came back, the half a mile that we walked was covered with water, right? And not only was it covered with water, that big rock, right? That would have been like swimming on a mouse, right? That big rock was now flat with water. And we actually got to get a boat and then, like, literally go by the rock that we had just climbed, right? So I feel like to say that like, these are wonderful, amazing things, right? And, and so I think what's interesting with the biblical writers in the the Gospels is that they're writing from each of their perspectives. So from Matthew, you'll see these aren't just promises of the kingdom, but we're looking forward to the end. When Luke, who heard the same sermon, will be like, oh, no, 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 he's the Messiah for today, right? So when you hear Luke talking in this sermon uh, on the plane, it's that there's more of an urgency of the now. And what's interesting is that, I don't know if you, you, you listen to these things called podcasts. The young people love that, right? I have a friend who's just like, I listen to seven a day, I was like, how? I talk for a living, and I don't have enough time to listen to seven podcasts a day, but they do it, right? Well, a lot of times, people who don't speak a lot, right, and who go around and speak, they have like three or four speeches. And for those of us who have to speak every week, we're just like, man, that's nice. Just recycle and start over, right? Um, Brian Stevenson is one of my personal heroes. I think he's an amazing person. Um, runs the Eco Justice Initiative, was one of the key people who went to the Supreme Court to actually stop our country from sentencing kids under 18 to death. Right? Like, this is someone who has brought people who were charged with murder who didn't do it and literally saved them from death row, right? And, and he does everything great, except he's a nice kind of a preacher. If you listen to Stevenson, you go on YouTube, you listen to two or three sermons or two or three speakers, you'll get the same points every time. I'm just like, this is wonderful. You know, like, it rotates the same thing, right? And I had this six month window where I got a chance to hear him two, three times, and I was just like, this is not right? Why is all that important? It's important because Jesus, too, was a nice kind of a preacher, right? So, so it's quite possible that some people think the reason Matthew is four times longer than Luke is because Matthew is just like, I'm going to give you all of the teachings that put it here, right? And then Luke is like, well, I just want to give you a point that's going to kind of push through this idea that Jesus is the Savior for the next, right? So that's why they're, they're very, very similar. So Matthew will give you a full rendering. Luke, as we'll go through here, will give you the, the essentials. But both of them are going to say, hey, 
These are the promises of the kingdom. They're not going to deal with salvation. They're going to deal with people who say we've chosen to follow Jesus, and what does life and following Jesus look like, right? And that's one of the things I'm really, really, uh, we're, we're Anabaptists, so we're not proud, but we're humble. One of the things we're humble about in our heritage is that we have been people of this book, right? We've been people of, of this sermon on the mount, this sermon on the plain, because we're for us, it's just like if Jesus said it, we will live it, we will do it. And what's beautiful about that is that that also puts us in line with the early Christians, the first followers. So as we go through this sermon on the, the, the plain, I want us to remember that this isn't about how to be saved, right? And Luke actually does this even more significantly when we get in here. This is not how you're saved, but this is how we the saviors are to live. This is a discipleship track, right? This is a discipleship sermon. And so when we get to this, we know that, that Jesus is, is asking Matthew, again, he's on the mountainside, the people are there, he preaches to the people. Matthew thought that was important. When we get to the new passage, you'll see that Jesus actually comes down. The people might be all around, but he looks at who? The disciples. So for Luke, it's like, this isn't just a message for the masses. This is a message for all of us who've chosen to follow Jesus. The crowd is present, but Jesus is looking at the disciples. Followers of Jesus needed to be equipped before he sent them out. And that's very, very important. So, so Luke is going to say, I'm going to write here because Jesus wants not to equip us, but encourage us as disciples to be faithful. And if you who don't believe yet, happen to hear something that tickles your fancy, come on board too. But this message is primarily for the followers of Jesus. And, and again, the early church, the very first Christians, this is how they live. Right? Partially because they didn't have tradition yet. They didn't have scripture compiled yet. They just had the words of Jesus. Jesus said it, I will do it, and I will live. What a simple, beautiful way to follow God. Amen? Every Bible turn now to Luke chapter 6. We'll be reading verses 17 to 26, starting at verse 17. We'll also have it up front so you can follow there as well. Luke 6, 17. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will grow hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how the ancestors treated the false prophets. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you so much. As we gather this morning, we are so blessed to be chosen by you. We're blessed that you so loved us that you sent your son. We're blessed that you so loved us that you raised them up and you empowered them by the Holy Spirit and that you called them to show us how to live in a way that pleases you. God, we thank you for this text and this sermon on the plane, the teachings of Jesus, that tell us what it means to not only follow Jesus, but what our life is supposed to look like, the fruit we're supposed to bear, how we are supposed to live. So God, we thank you this morning. We pray now that as we go into this text, that we can grow in trust in you, that we can grow in delight in you, that we can grow in, in commitment of you. But most of all, Lord, we pray that we can learn to be still, not just in your presence, but the way through your spirit inspires and moves us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and not just this teaching this morning, but a reminder for all of us that foundationally you have called us not just to believe, but to follow. Not just to follow, but to live. Not just to live, but to love. In the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen? So the interesting thing about this passage is that it is Luke is writing sequentially, right? He's building uh, not just a case about who Jesus is, but even in introducing the sermon on the plane, he wants to tell you who it's for. So when he starts off, the, the passage is actually preceded by Jesus having all night prayer. And that's very important. It's another thing that we need to step back, right? Because Luke is going to consistently say, he's the son of God, and he has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
And now we find that Jesus our God, but he needed to pray. And not only did he need to pray, he prayed all night. Now you may be wondering, Jesus our God, what is he praying about? Well, we've been dragging along, a lot of people are growing increasingly upset. Some have started plotting his destruction. Some have even come out and said, we want to kill him. Right? So if nothing else to move your prayer, maybe someone's trying to tell you more than you, right? But the point here is that the religious and political leaders have all started fighting against him. But I think even deeper than that, right? Because Jesus knew why he came. And he would tell the disciples time and time again, you think it's for this Savior, this Messiah to, to redeem Israel and put you on top now. That's not what I came for. I came to live and then to die and then to be raised again. And so he knows why he's there. I think part of the reason Jesus goes to prayer isn't just that his life is at stake. It's that he knows that I may preach to tens of thousands, but only hundreds might believe. And of that hundreds, only tens might truly believe. And of that tens, only 72 do I feel capable to go out and start the work. And of that 72, only 12, maybe 11, can really say they became my apostles, my ambassadors, those who follow me. So I think when Jesus is praying because it's hard, when you're trying to lead a group, right? And they keep mixing everything with each other. The pandemic has taught me the value of teaching. So much. I remember one, 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 a couple years ago when we were in the, the height of the pandemic, our youngest was in kindergarten, and their teacher was trying to teach kindergarten in, 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 in Zoom. I never prayed so hard in my life. And I was just like, God, bless this way. This is not working for any of us, right? And I just like, I looked at my mother, and now I guess she was five at the time. I looked at her, and she looked at me, I was like, oh, you, I can't save you. Only Jesus saves, honey. You know, it's just like, you were, you're doing this, right? And, and, but I think that one of the hardest things about leading anything is to go to the people God called you to go to. It's to preach what God's given and put on your heart, and they keep you. And Luke is tracking this, right? Luke is tracking how many times people thought off good, they loved Jesus, and they get to a point where they just completely miss it. And that takes the fold. And I think that's part of the reason why Jesus goes to prayer, because Jesus was also fully human. And here's the thing about human, right? All of us love to be loved. All of us. Some of us are a little unhealthy about it, right? Or maybe you need a little too much. At a base level, we talked about needs last week. At a base level, we want to be loved. We want to be accepted. When you're in the business of getting denied day by day by day by day, it takes a toll on you. And I love that not just when they raise him up, not just when they threaten him, not just when they let him down, not just when they agree about him, Jesus always goes to pray. So before we get to sermon, Jesus spends the night in prayer. And one of the things he was praying about was probably which 12 do we now, he could have been telling God, I know what it is, just pick the 12, right? But you have to remember now he has thousands probably following him around town as well, right? You have people who are making this commitment every day. They have some who are showing the leadership capabilities. We know in the gospel he sent out 72. So that means on my count, at least 60 people who probably thought they were on the inner circle did not get chosen, right? And so even the weight of that is what he's going through. Because when Jesus preaches and, you know, Jesus calls these disciples, it's not just, oh, 12 disciples because there were 12 tribes of Israel, right? That was like little Timothy. That's important. But it's not as important as who he chose and why. Because the difference between being a student and being a disciple is that when you're a disciple of Jesus, right, you belong to Jesus alone. There's a lot of people who will tell you, well, I like what Jesus teaches, right? I like the moral teachings of Jesus. So I'm like, I don't know what Jesus you're reading. Because Jesus seems to be a God who's very much sure he's God one, and that you ought to follow him too. And if you don't follow him, Jesus does seem to appreciate you liking his teaching. Right? And then again, because if we come, and if Jesus is going to say, this is how to follow God, and you're like, well, I'm not really going to appreciate that God piece, but like one or two things he says kind of cool with me. Right? Like that's essentially when people say, well, he's a good teacher. I don't think Jesus cares if you think he's a good teacher. He wants to know if he's your Lord. I don't think Jesus you say you believe him. He wants to know, has your life been transformed by you? Has your words been transformed? Has your actions been transformed? Have you been transformed? Are you actually following me? Because disciples don't just learn as students, they actually follow. And so disciples belong to Jesus, right? And, and there's students who follow Jesus. But then of these 12 that he chooses, Luke actually 
says, well, then he also called them apostles. The Greek here is apostolos, right, which means sent one, right? So it's funny, because Christians are very, we're very clear in the beginning. Who are we, Christians? Christ right? Who are we, apostles? Sent one. That's very great, right? The essence of being an apostle of Jesus is that you've already been sent. It's not waiting to be sent. Right? It's not waiting to follow. You're following him, and then he sends you out. In fact, and, and apostles are really like ambassadors, right? And, and the gospel writers don't really lean into it. It's Paul who later on says, what? You're ambassadors in Christ. What does an ambassador do? You represent the kingdom. You represent the kingdom. And you carry the message of the kingdom. And that's as Jesus called us back to him. Right? Because when we are created in the image of God, it's a beautiful thing where, again, it's not you personally who created the image of God, it's us together, right? That's a you fool. You all, y'all are created in the image of God. But when we're created in the image and likeness of God, it's not just, oh, we have reason, we have rationality, we can think, right? We're smarter than the animals. No, when we're created in the image of God, the ancients like this idea of statue, right? And so they would put a statue out because the king would rule over the whole empire, the king is up in the palace. So the statute also reminds you of what? Who the king is. What the king has done, and that you are serving the king. And so when you think about it from that, when God says, I'm creating you in my image, God is essentially saying, I'm going to be up in heaven. And every time they see you, they ought to remember me. That's the way to carry The image and likeness of God means that we are literally God's statutes for the world. You also represent not only who your king is, but you also be living in a way that you're giving the message of your king. Just by standing there, I don't know about you, but most actually don't talk, right? But just by standing there and existing there, you ought to be pointing to God. So this is who Jesus calls his disciples to be. And this is what was differentiating about these twelve. Not only are they going to be disciples who follow me, but they're going to be ones who are sent out by me. And it's to this group. And Jesus is primarily speaking according to Luke. The message was for the disciples. But what I love is that Luke is a guy, uh, well, Luke is a, a, a Gentile. And as a Gentile, his personal bias, or I maybe we'll say better, his personal lens is always for how God came for the world. So in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, in the middle of, of Judea and, and in Jerusalem, and in the middle of this whole region of Galilee and Nazareth, he also said that there were people there from the Philippines or from the Gentile regions of Tyre and Sidon. It's amazing that in this message to the disciples, Jesus isn't just preaching to Jews. He's not just preaching to Jews he chose. He's not just preaching to Jews who happen to be in his hometown. He's preaching to the world. From the beginning, God has desired and has called us to come for the world. And if you compare, right, this Judea and Jerusalem and Tyre and Sidon to what he says in Acts 1.8 before he goes up, right, you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the enemies of the earth. So that's not something new he gives them. That's something he practices. But I also love to remember who these disciples were. They were brothers. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were business partners. They were fishermen. But they were also political rivals. You had people like Matthew, who at least from the outside seemed to be like, you know what, Rome is bad. Because we can make a little better living. Not too bad. Right? And you had people like Simon, who we call a zealot, but he was just like, bring it on. Right? Like, this whole working with the Romans, not really my cup of tea. I love when people are like, we're just so divided today. I'm like, you should go to a disciple's meeting, right? Like, Matthew is back to like the Simon and Bella. Without Facebook, they live together too. Like, Facebook, you got to hide behind your keyboard and say your, your terrible comments and hit enter, and then run, right? Like, these people have to live together, walk around together, and before Jesus, they probably hated one another, right? And so when, when, why is that important? That's important because when Jesus calls people, he calls all people. And while we may specialize on our differences, Jesus specializes on bringing us to all And so that's who he calls, right? These are the disciples that he calls. And, and so when he comes down to the mountain, he's praying, he looks at the disciples, he's preaching not just to them, but to people who come from all over the region, really all over that part of the known world. As he's preaching, People are coming to not just hear and be healed. We have people who are fighting to touch them. 
because they know just one touch from Jesus and they might be healed. And I love what Luke says here, that Jesus has power in pain, but also power that goes out from pain. I think that's beautiful. I think if we ought to be representing Jesus, then we are trying to be anything. To not just have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, but to have the Holy Spirit flowing out of us and into our world. To not just have God's love inside of us, but to have God's love flowing out of us into our world. To not just have God's compassion inside of us, but to have it inside of us and what? Flowing to our world. Jesus has power in him, but I was going out of him too. And in the middle of this healing service, Jesus is really good about how to in the middle of this healing service, you have now got your attention. Let me tell you how you are And now he says, I am going to be the God of not just the law, but a God of the blessing. The word he uses in, in, in Matthew and, and also Luke here is Makario. Makario is this idea of happiness. But it's not happiness that we tend to, like, in our, our, our culture, we think about happiness, it tends to be fleeting, or it tends to be temporary, or it tends to be like things that make me warm and fuzzy and feel good. Makarios is the closest to Shalom, actually. It's closer to this idea of a wholeness of joy, right? A joy that comes to your entire well-being. When Jesus says, blessed, or when he says Makarios, he says, you will have peace. God peace. That's the kind of happiness he's talking about. That's the blessing he's promising. He's not saying, because you're poor, you're blessed. You can talk to a poor person, they don't feel blessed. But he's saying, in me, in me, even though you're poor, you can have my joy. You can have my peace. You can have me. In the world of nothing, you can have everything in me. And there's Macario, right? This wholeness of joy and well-being and shalom. He says, blessed are you who are poor. This is interesting. Matthew in the whole London says, poor and I think Luke is actually just focused on the poor. Because remember what he says in Luke 14, right? Who did Jesus come for? The poor. And the word he uses here is tacos, which is hilarious because I was eating tacos at the time. I was thinking about this. And I was like, I'm going to get up there and say tacos. I'm going to preempt myself and say tacos, right? So tacos means that you're so poor that you're driven to bed. I think you're so poor that you're fully reliant on others to feed, for water, for shelter, for bed. That's who Jesus is calling for. And the poverty he's calling is not just a poverty of material things, but he's saying the foundation of following me is you getting to a point where you realize that you have to be perfectly poor for me. You have to get to a point where you realize there's nothing you can do without me. You have to get to a point where you realize that it's not about you pulling yourself up. It's not about you sustaining yourself. It's not about how, how great you are. If you realize that there's nothing you can do to come to God without me, you have to be poor. One writer says you have to be bankrupt spiritually and know it's not by your will, but only by God's will. And how are we saved? But by the Holy Spirit that condemns us, but also convicts us and calls us. How are we saved? But by Jesus who died for us. How are we saved? But by God Himself, who made it possible that our sins can be forgiven. There's nothing we can do to follow God on our own. It's the Spirit that can say, it's Jesus who died, it's the Father who saves. Amen? So when Luke says, or when Luke quotes Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom. He's not talking about poverty as a blessing, right? There's some, there's some preachers who will say, you know, we don't like the prosperity gospel, so if, if you're poor, you must be more favored by God. That's not what Jesus is saying, because Jesus knew what it was to be poor. I think it's time for those of us who are more privileged to stop looking at the poor, not as a result of the choices we make, or the governments we back, or the policies we choose, but looking at it as some right that they have, they're like, oh, they must be pious that they're poor. No, they're poor because we live in a broken world. And quite often, they're poor because we take more than even what we need. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the people who have to rely on others. And you see why Luke and Matthew use this as a foundational reality, right? Because we are the opposite of that. 
It's not just about having needs and admitting needs. Most of us don't want to admit we need each other. Most of us don't want to admit we can't do this life on our own. Most of us will do everything by ourselves, and then when it hits us, we're overwhelmed. We can't do it by ourselves, and we start to cycle. You're not supposed to do it by yourself, and that's okay. Blessed are you who are poor, for you are in the kingdom. And I think the reason Luke focuses on material poverty here is because some of these disciples, when they chose to follow God, became poor. We talk about Matthew being a tax collector, right? And maybe before then he was very wealthy. But there's nothing worse than someone who betrays wrong. There's nothing worse than a company man who gives up the company and becomes the antithesis of that same company. There were some of these disciples who choosing to follow God, which is why I think it's beautiful that we pray for the persecuted church. I pray that we keep praying for the persecuted church because there's so many of our siblings around the world that to follow God is to give up everything. And it's then that Jesus says, you are blessed. Because you still have me. Blessed are you who hunger, for you will be satisfied. Again, for Luke, this isn't just spiritual hunger. But it's people who actually know hunger. And sometimes I feel like we can tap into that, right? We miss a meal and we really, really want to eat. But the hunger that Luke is talking about is the hunger that comes not just from missing a meal, but missing a week of meal. It's the hunger that comes not just from not knowing where your next meal will come from, but from never knowing where your next meal will come from. And Luke says, yeah, just like you have to be physically and, and spiritually and materially bankrupt and, and know that you know where you can come to God except through Jesus, you ought to be that hungry too for Jesus. If you need something to pray for this morning, join me in that prayer that we will have the same hunger for the food that goes in that we have for our Jesus. I didn't miss meals, but I never miss meals to get what I'm saying. I think if I miss breakfast, I'm going to try to go off and lunch. Right? I always catch up. I wish I and all of us had the same hunger for ice cream. I wish we had that same hunger that was driven. Right? Because it's not just a physical hunger, but it's a desire to seek after God and to worship God and to live for God with all that we are, our entire internal focus. When you've ever been hungry, that's all you can think about. When was the last time you got through a day and Jesus was all we could think about? That's the challenge. That's the prayer. This is what we ought to be working towards. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. Again, Jesus is not saying you're more holy because you're broken. You're more holy because you're suffering. You're more holy because things are really hard on you. He's saying even when this world tries to break you down, you have hope. And that the, 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 the weeping that has been called here, you finally pulled us out of the material. And, and the word has a connotation of weeping over not just the world being broken, but our own brokenness. Getting to a point where we're truly weeping because of us sinning against God. Because those are the people who believe us. The people who actually know the people who actually know that we fall in the people who actually know that God's forgiveness is possible. I believe in grace. I live by grace. I was here by grace. Grace is amazing, but sometimes we abuse grace by not taking our sins seriously. Because oh, God will forgive us. And we go on and keep doing the same pattern. I hate sin to give us sin to give us sin forgiveness. And then when you start looking through the scriptures, you're like, wait a second. If I have this continual pattern of sin, 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 am I truly making Jesus the Lord of my life? It's good that God forgives me, but am I truly being transformed by the Lord? Does this sin drive you not just to ask for forgiveness, but to ask you does your sin drive you not to receive forgiveness from God, but from the people you actually are? Does your sin not just want you to have grace so that you can feel free, but are you being like that here and trying to make things right here? 
really come to this passage that a lot of us struggle with, right? Especially the UN there, too, they get food and rejected. I think a lot of Christians stop there. There's so many Christians, especially for us in the West, like, yeah, the world hates us as a Christian. And I don't know about you, but me in these conversations, I'm not getting mad, right? I would say at least 66 will pass away. So two out of three times when people say that, it's not so much that the world hates you because of Jesus, it's that the world hates you because of Jesus. And I think a lot of us have to pass it in one. The world hates us because we're Christians. No, 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 no. The passage says, blessed are you when they hate you because of me. Like when they actually hate you because you're following Jesus. Not because you're following a political party. Not because you're supporting things that are harming them. Not because you're doing things that are actually harming them. Not because you're living in your privilege. Not because you're living in your power. When the world hates you because you're doing harm, that's a new problem. If they hate you because you're living in a way that's glorifying God, then you're There's a difference. When we just assume the world hates us as we're Christians, I invite us to just spend five minutes on Google reading about what hate for the Christian church actually looks like. This is not a Facebook post. It's you losing your life. It's not someone not liking your picture. It's someone taking you and putting you in jail. It's convincing you that Jesus Christ, when it's for me, I want you to know that you are blessed. Why? Because you can rejoice in the hope to come. You can rejoice in the rewards to come. You can remember that that's how we see this as true. I love that we serve a God who never forgets the pains that we go through. He never forgets the suffering of his saints. He never forgets when people get fully forgiven. And I wish that in his life, it's the all wrong thing to do, right? I want to suffer good stuff. But I love that Jesus promised us not just hope, not just reward, but promise. Amen? And then he gets to the world. Now, some scholars will tell you, you know, this passage is actually just copying Moses, right? Because if you go to the Old Testament, Moses does what? He goes up to the mountain and prays, right? And then when he comes down, he gives a speech, right? And, and, and so Moses calls the 12 tribes. Jesus calls the 12 disciples. Now, I don't know if these writers are that brilliant to keep all this together, but it makes sense to me, right? It clears up, right? But in that tradition, whenever you had a great speech or a great testament or a great sermon, you would call it, right? You would often have blessings and growth because that's covenant relationship. So the idea here was if you live to please me, you will know the blessing. But if you don't live to please me, you will know the world. And what's interesting here is that for Luke, the woes are not just, hey, you're bad, right? Luke argues that it's a compassionate regret and not a threat. Now, it's challenging to me, to be honest with you, I don't know if I get this. Because if Mike says, woe to you, I'm like, yeah, that doesn't feel good. don't sound so good, right? So if you look at the context of the entire verse, and even in the Greek a little bit, probably a little bit more, right? The idea here is that if you're not fully living like the blind, you're honestly breaking Jesus' heart. And so the woe is coming from that place. When he says, woe to the rich. You have already received comfort. Woe to the welfare, for you will go hungry. He's speaking to us who are privileged in what we have, what we say. We're the opposite of immigrants and Christians in the world. He's speaking to us who have built our lives on having no needs, who have built our lives on being self sufficient who built our lives on not needing anybody. These are saying, woe to you. Now, he's saying this that he's saying articles every week, right? And it's coming out, and it's terrifying. It's saying we in the West are more depressed than we've ever been. We're more lonely than we've ever been. We're more tired than we've ever been. We're working harder and seeing less than we've ever been. Woe to us if we think we can do it on our own. And that's what he's saying here, right? Woe to you if you have no need. 
Woe to you if you look at the world in your life and Or at least, in our case, you're turning your eyes from the past. You're not working to alleviate the past. You're not fighting for redemption and hope for the past. Right? Woe to us when we can see suffering and be unchanged. Woe to us when we're spoken well of. This is the rest link to that first lesson we said when they gave you a excuse to reject you for my sake. Well, they gave that to you. Not because of you, but because you fit in the best way of life. Woe to you if you look more like your brother than your God. Woe to you if you look more like your country than your church. Woe to you if you look more like yourself. Living in the image of God, of not the people who are living to bring peace and shalom to the world, people who are bringing love and life to the world, people who are being the image and likeness of God. Woe to you who fit into a world that is glorified and suffering and hurting. Woe to you if you're not alleviating any broken scars of your So, what is the big news for the black guy in our world? I think the first thing that we can kind of pull from this is that if Jesus made a prayer, how much more do we need to Jesus prioritized time spent with God. And I love that. Because Jesus taught God's will and relied on the Spirit. Spurgeon has this great quote where he says, One night alone in prayer might make his new people change from poverty of soul to spiritual wealth, from trembling to piety. I hear that I see Jesus in Gethsemane, but I also see Jesus on the mountain. We ought to be people who prioritize spending time with God. We have our, our homes and our schedules and everything that we have going on. We ought to be people who prioritize spending time with God. Because every great relationship, oftentimes, is only as good as what we put in time. If we're not prioritizing spending time with God, able to walk with God because we're not actually what? Walking with God. We need prayer as Jesus needed prayer. Then the second thing we can pull from this is that we need partners as Jesus needs partners. In a big crowd with followers all around him, Jesus wanted to pray. Students who not only listen and learn, but who actually actively follow him. If you think about Jesus' life and ministry, we're talking about students. And what it reminds us is that Jesus needed people not just back then to do and carry on the work, but even today. He's God. He could have done it all by himself. But praise God, he chooses to partner with us. And so this is not just a personal call to say, we can't do this life by ourselves and we need one another. This is a call to arms in the practical kind of action. Right? Meaning we're called to serve, we're called to love, we're called to actually do work together. All of us should be working on something together for the kingdom. That's the simplest way to say All of us at any given time in our life should be doing something for the kingdom. And I love this church because there's so many of us who that's our life, that's our vocation. It's not just that we're in healthcare or ministry or nonprofits, right? It's not just that we're serving here at the church, but we actually have taken this major part of our DNA. May we never lose that. Because all of us at any given time ought to be working together for the kingdom. Amen? I think if we go to the, the blessing today, my prayer for us is that we can be poor the way Jesus needs us to be poor. Because we can't be filled up by the Holy Spirit. We can't be filled up by God. We can't be filled up by Jesus if we're not willing to be emptied. This isn't just new life. This is actually praying that every single day, right? Pray that prayer of David. He is a few wicked when he leads, right? And leads me in the way of everlasting. 
we ought to be for every single day. Every single day we ought to be saying, Jesus, empty me of the things of the world. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your love. Fill me with your compassion. We ought to be poor because that's the foundation in the kingdom of God. We must be hungry. Know that only God can satisfy. I don't know when we get to our 30s or our 40s, we figure it out, right? One thing I love about the young people, and we're 50 50 years, got it all figured out. One thing I love about the young people is that they know they haven't figured it out. And they have something to teach us about that. Instead of pretending we get it all together, they remind us, right, that we don't have it all together. But I think even more so, they're starting to reject these messages, right? That, that a career will be what fulfills them. That a partner will be, or a husband or wife will be what fulfills them, right? Or, or, or doing something that, that you know, practical, that hard work, so that only God can fulfill There's a hunger that's deep within us, and it's not just always a vacuum inside of us, right? It's an actual vacuum, and it's a hole that can only be filled by God. And for those of us who try all the things, at least some of the things, hungry for more. We learn that only God satisfies. Amen? I think we must reach together. We see suffering. We must reach. We see pain. We must be broken too. We see people who are in struggle. We must reach. Because quite often, the pain, the brokenness, the struggle, something for kids in your neighborhood, or inviting someone. Uh, this is one of the fascinating things. When I was a kid, you almost never ate dinner in the same house, right? Two nights in a row. Uh, you just never did. And it's something that I didn't know was weird. Until I became an adult and I got a house, I was like, ooh, that is kind of weird. Like, people in my house every day, ooh, you know? That's a big thing, you know? But may we be people who are willing to break that with one another. Because if we're not willing to open our doors, we actually won't be able to reach the right. If we're not willing to open our hearts, we actually will have to be loving them because God wants us to be Lastly, though we suffer, we must always remember that it's not without us. I think one of the hard parts about sometimes for us in life, we hear things about the persecuted church and we go on Google and read these things, right? We say, oh my gosh, that's so bad what they're going through. Then we feel like what we're going through isn't bad enough, right? And it's just like, it doesn't compare. Like, no one's trying to kill me. The thing about this life, there's darkness everywhere we go. There's darkness sometimes that still lives inside of us. There's battles and struggles that we have. And knowing this, and knowing like a tiny bit of our story, right? There's so many things we're battling even at this moment. So whatever your battle is, may you know that you may suffer now. You serve the God who sees. You serve the God who sees the You serve the God who sees Amen? Let's just call it back right here in the worship team. We're going to close through our final song. Um, again, we'd like to invite any other pastors to come up front. We'd love to pray for you um, for anything you have going on in life or any person that's on your mind you'd love to pray for. Um, but as we sing this song, may we be reminded, may we rededicate ourselves, right? To say, God, every day I want to be emptied out of filled with you. God, every day I want to have a hunger that's only met by you. God, help me to weep like you weep. But help me to know that even in my suffering, we cry out from heaven. Let's sing this song together.
sitting in that eyes that you said to me, maybe a prayer. A prayer that not only do we know Christ, not only do we believe Christ, but we're actually following Christ. A prayer that we're inviting Christ into not just our hearts, but into our lives. And a prayer that the love of God is so well within us that it flows out of us and into our world. And I Father God, we thank you so much for your son Jesus Christ. But you thank you that you so loved us that you left heaven to come to earth. That you so loved us that you gave your life for us. We thank you that before that was life, and in that life, Lord, you have taught us how to live. So God, help us who have chosen to follow you, to not just be students of you, but disciples of you. Help us to follow you fully, Lord. So God, we pray if there's any way or any part of our lives that we have not given you full lordship to, that we have not fully surrendered and, and submitted to you, God, we pray that today is the day of that salvation. That today is the day of that coming back home. That today is the day that we say, Lord, I want you to be Lord of every single part of me. God, help us to be people who are so poor in knowing that we need you and you alone. Who are so hungry knowing that you're the only one that holds all of us. Knowing that we are so broken that you're the one who can. God, we thank you that you promised blessings not just in the midst of suffering, but blessing that not just for reward to come, but you promise blessing now. So that we know that Macario's joy, that we know that the moment that comes with the peace that has us all understanding, that we know what it means to rest in you. And God, may our world know, not us, but Christ in us. In the holy Christ's name, amen. God bless you all. Amen.